This time, we're continuing our foreign sci-fi month by watching Solaris. And along the way, we ask, what other great films were stuck behind the Iron Curtain? What stopped Chris from murdering everyone else on the station? And was Tarkovsky trying to solve a problem that didn't exist? Sometimes you become a podcast without wanting to. And this is Force Fed Sci-Fi. All right, folks, welcome back to another bodacious episode of Force Fed Sci-Fi. My name is Sean Michael Culp, and along with me is my friend and co-host. I am Chris Rupp, and today we are joined by not one, but two special guests. Our first guest, you know him, he's been on the podcast before, Mr. Brian McLeod. Welcome back to Force Fed Sci-Fi, Brian. What's up, guys? And also joining us, we have a first-time guest, and but also... Very much a film buff. We have Mr. Matt Hooper joining us. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. Very fun. We are very excited mm-hmm. to have both of you on Force Fed Sci-Fi. We're continuing Sean's picks with Foreign Sci-Fi Month, and uh, this is kind of a bit of a, I guess, left field pick for Sean with Solaris. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess not exactly left field. This has been kind of held up as a very much a... We don't. We don't have to pepper this, Chris. I totally just Googled randomly. (laughs) (laughs) Best foreign sci-fi films Well, that explains a lot. (laughs) And this came up, so. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate the candor. (laughs) (laughs) So there you have it, folks. Thank you, Googles, for this. Oh, man. (laughs) Yes, we're excited, though, to jump into this. Uh, Chris, do you want to give us a synopsis? Absolutely. So following reports of strange occurrences, psychologist Chris Kelvin is sent to the space station orbiting the planet Solaris to evaluate its occupants only to find out that he is not immune to the planet's phenomena. Wow. Phenomena. (laughs) (laughs) So right off the rip, it sounds like it's pretty interesting. On the surface, yes, but then you realize this is a nearly three-hour-long movie, and there's no way to fast-forward through it. Yeah. There need to be more Muppets. I think that was a big part of it. Yeah. As soon as you did the Menomina thing, it's like, there aren't enough Muppets. I don't think uh, Muppets were in the Soviet Union, but if they were, they were probably like off-brand like Muppets or something. The Muppets. (laughs) Well, you sit down, you eat eat your borscht, and you watch Muppets. They all worked in a factory. They were all really happy. Trust me, not enough Muppets will save this film. (laughs) (laughs) Coming in hot. (laughs) Coming in hot. Brian is ready to just murder this movie. <laughs> yeah, just a heads up, folks. Brian wants to murder this film. So the director, uh, Tarkovsky. So uh, just, a, I guess, a precursor. I was talking with Matt about this, and then you were the one that like was like, hey, Tarkovsky is like one of the greatest of all time. He's oh, hailed. Yeah. And I, I was like, who? So I, like, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not the, I have not seen a Tarkovsky before this movie, but I have just known from like, you know, reading my film stuff and, you know, that kind of thing that his reputation is, you know, up there with some of the great directors of all time, right? Like he's considered sort of like one of those like highly influential international cinema icons kind of a thing yeah and i believe it too because i know that we've said that i'm going to just knock out this movie in this podcast but you can tell that he's a he's a great director with some of the shots in this film and some of the color profiles and just the overall storytelling you could you could tell that he's definitely up there with some of these shots especially considering this was all done in the early 70s 
Yeah. And also with Russian filmmaking techniques. Uh, yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. All the ruples on hand. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wish we had just an hour to talk about Tarkovsky's life before he made this movie, because this dude lived through some stuff. Well, can he, you uh, share some of the highlights? Or, <laughs> and you or can, if, yeah. Well, you can even, like, you don't even have to read his biography. You just look at his face, like a photo of his face, and you're like, that dude went through some stuff. Yeah. He's just got one of those, like, I, those are creases uh, that are, like, earned. He's got one of them, one of them faces. I mean, according to family lore, like he had, there was like royalty somewhere, like way in his past. Um, he and then he enlisted in the in the Russian military in in like 1939. He served in World War II and lost a freaking leg. <laughs> a chill time to enroll in the Russian military, by the way. 1939, super chill time to be a, a Russian soldier. Or that may have been his dad. I don't know. Like, there's a lot of, like, there's some conflicting information out there, it looks like. <laughs> but, I mean, either way, like like Matt was saying, like, you look at a picture of this guy, like, even when he's, you know, in the in the 70s or the 60s, and even in the 80s, this dude looked like he's spent some time on a mountaintop with <laughs> this harsh wind blowing in his face and just thinking about all the people he's seen murdered. Well, yeah. I was laughing because yeah. I, I think maybe, like, all the, I read it, the Wikipedia, or, no, 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 I was reading, there was, there's, there was a pretty good New Yorker thing in Tarkovsky like in February uh, that I just reread before this and there was a line that I literally started laughing out loud because it said his mom got upset he was hanging out with like the wrong crowd Mm -hmm. and so she sent him to uh, Siberia on like a like workers expedition or something and then the next line said it was one of the happiest times of his life (laughs) like I guess he went to Siberia and he was just like this is great I don't know why everyone's so upset. This is beautiful. What? Open... We, we're here at summer camp. There's <laughs> nine feet of snow, but this is summer in Siberia. I'm having a great time. Beautiful open vistas. You know, we talk about his appearance, and I just Googled him. And just you could just tell just by he has, like, that mustache and just, you know, it kind of looks like a flat top. But you know he had a flat top, but he hasn't gotten a haircut in a while because he just doesn't care. You know, he's been through a lot of stuff. And that and that jawline too. That just screams. Uh, I know we were talking pre-production. We were talking about Ed Harris, but that's just like Ed Harris, Ron <laughs> Perlman type that. jawline. Well, he like really, I think like part of his legend was his appearance and his persona, right? Like part of it was like uh, the idea of him as like a towering, you know, icon was probably just people looking and be like, yeah, that dude. Look at that dude. Like Man. he just has that look. I think. If he's directing you, are you going to challenge him? Right. I'm like, no, no, you do exactly what he says. Right, 100%. Very much just like, I mean, he looks like your stereotypical, like, just Russian hard ass. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I mean, you look at his body of work and just how much he's lauded by the almost like the entirety of Russia, even though he defected in, in the mid-80s because he wanted to make more films in the West. And mm-hmm. it's they still love him. By all accounts, he's still very much a Russian hero. Yeah. I've never heard of this guy until, uh, you know, we watched this film. Same. Same until Matt was like, he's amazing. Yeah, and it was interesting. I read it a part, too, that, like, it's, you know, part of, like, the Russian lauding of him now, too, is, like, he's sort of been, like, un- in a very unfortunate way, like, reclaimed by, you know, like, um, sort of the more, you know, nationalist sectors and population, you know, in the country. Sort of one of those, like, he... You know, the work gets lauded after his, you know, life, you know, not always by, like, the crazy people, but also, like, um, it's still considered, like, you know, um, 
I think even in the West, like, you know, considered like highly influential and towering in terms of like just the what he brought, like, you know, to cinema for the first time and like really amplified in his movies and stuff. By all accounts, very much a beloved filmmaker. Well, we we have a bit of a fun thought experiment later that we'll get into regarding Tarkovsky. And uh, we apologize in advance for any uh, Russian mispronunciations because uh, y'all have got some complicated words to pronounce. <laughs> so we're going to do our best to kind of uh, fumble through those. Uh, but this cast, too, I mean, we'll, we'll certainly get into their performance a little later, but this cast kind of works well together. Um, I mean, we have our leading man, uh, Chris Kelvin, played by... Um, I'm so you got it. S- I'm so sorry for how this is per- how this is written. Uh, Donatus of the Bananas. <laughs> you sound like me trying to pronounce regular names. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it was very tempting to say bananas, but like that's not right. It would be so funny if like that was it was that cast was like that, and then one of the people was just like Greg Clark. Like if it was just like one of the actors was like Stanley Johnson. <laughs> Yeah, I I'm trying to figure out the pronunciations. I I can't, you know. I I, I don't even know where to begin. And and Vladimir Zamansky voiced him cuz this was dubbed apparently. Yeah, that that's one thing I found very interesting is that uh, you know, we, this is a good cast and there's some good performances, but I've noticed throughout the film that it, there is a lot of voiceovers. And it that was to me that was very jarring about the, the the film is that all almost all the actors had voiceovers and the sound that happened on the set was completely muted out like you could even hear like fully artist type recordings of like footsteps and it's, it was just like it wasn't terrible but it wasn't great to the point where you just you know don't realize it like it's very evident that <laughs> that those footsteps are artificial that's the Tarkovsky legend that's <laughs> I have to agree, it rocks. That's actually very much a European style filmmaking because oh. in, in American films, like you, you see, you know, quiet on the set, don't mm-hmm. talk, you'll mess up the sound. Yeah. In Europe, they'll just do whatever the hell they wanted behind the camera. Like there's people lighting cigarettes, there's mm-hmm. talking because all the work is done post production. Like if you watch like uh, Sergio Leone westerns, everything you hear in that movie is dubbed or is done in a studio. Oh, Every single bit of sound. Wow. And if like my wife and I were actually watching James Bond movies right now, we're going through the early ones and some of the dub work is just awful in those movies, <laughs> but it's very much that European style where there isn't quiet on the set. It's just do whatever you want and we'll fix it in post. And part of that too, I wonder is like when you're, you know, you think about watching like a movie like this now and you're like, it's very jarring because you're just not used to it. If you were watching a movie at the time in like the early 70s, so many movies were probably dubbed over and like done in post. So it might just be one of those things where um, like when you have the experience now of if you're watching like, you know, Star Trek at home and you're like, I'm seeing like so much caked on makeup. It's insane. But at the time, if you were watching it on TV, like your brain wouldn't even be processing it in like the same way because you're just like inundated with that same kind of stuff. So that might be part of it. Yeah. Holla. <laughs> for <laughs> for Hari. Well, who's who's our uh, femme fatale? Brian, you you knew some backstory. Of this. <laughs> yeah, it, this is some interesting uh, casting choices. Uh, so, uh, I'm not even going to pronounce the director's name. Um, so the director originally cast his ex-wife as Hari, which 
awkward. Very. And that, I mean, like that's a bold choice. Foolish, but bold. It's a James Cameron yeah, choice. It's, <laughs> it's a, you know, the more we learn about him, I'm seeing. Oh, God. It would be funny if Harry had to be like super buff, like uh, Linda uh, Hamilton. Like uh, if that was, he was like, you also have to do like CrossFit like all day. Well, well, that didn't happen. Um, but luckily he uh, met this other actress. Uh, what was it? Bibby? Natalia uh, Bondarchuk. Well, no. There's, so right. there is one other person. Before we got get to uh, Natalia, there was one other person um, that was originally cast as Hari, but she ended up being recast as the mother because um, the director met Natalia, and Natalia uh, would then take the role of Hari. So it's got tossed around. The role got tossed around quite a bit, but I think they they nailed it. Um, uh, with Natalia because she uh, really was the best performer in my opinion in the in the film like she carried it definitely I think yeah definitely the right choice to pick with somebody who's younger and allows the audience to kind of like this in way and the, not your ex-wife right <laughs> well <laughs> it allows the audience this in way into the the second and third acts of the film as like we, you know, we're coming into you know, st- uh, you know unfamiliar with this situation the same way as Hari is because her last memory is probably of killing herself and then boom she's back with her with her husband and somewhere in the space station in the middle of the universe yeah surprise <laughs> what a great way to be resurrected an amazing way to be born just come in like oh gosh this place well, sucks and even tarkovsky singled out natalia like he even wrote in his diary that she outshone everybody yeah i mean like i i think there, there's no bad performances, but it, it's like it's pretty evident when you're working with uh, someone who's a really, really good actor. It and they just outshine you. It, it, they just make all the other actors look like amateurs. Well, she has like the craziest role in terms of like the mental work she has to do. Right? Oh yeah, like, the prep work and considering well, the acting style uh, in the, uh, you know, at that time too. It's like, and like just in terms of like what the it's like she doesn't have memories that are the exes but she has memories but they're not like but she's also like just being bored but she's not human but she is like there it's like it's the, the way you would have to do like the mental gymnastics is just it's like crazy to think about it's weird seeing their chris's and harry's relationship reflected only through the perspective of chris yeah mm-hmm. absolutely because i mean marriages break apart for numerous reasons and everybody is kind of set in their own ways and thinking like, well, I'm right. What I believe is right. How this is how we should do things. And there's always, that's why it's marriage. There's two sides of each coin. (laughs) She kind of loses her part. Yes. Her soul as who she is as a person. And it's interesting. Yes. Like watching this, I was like, Oh, it's like if you had a chance to go back in time and like see one of your exes or whatever, like right the wrong or whatever re-experience that relationship but it's only with your part right like they and lose their the, i mean like the whole obviously like a big theme of the movie is like memory and like our version of reality and stuff mm-hmm. and it's so interesting to think about like someone is getting the personified version of their idea of someone who's not in their life anymore and like how does that look in practice and like what if that memory your version of events actually showed up and they were like what help like i'm scared like i'm your version of me is terrified. Like, what is this? You know, it's such an interesting, like, thought experiment. I'm going to yeah. kill myself again. <laughs> I'm so freaked out. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that was definitely the most jarring scene of the movie is to see her dead on the floor. Oh, my gosh. And to come back to life and oh. just be like, oh, my gosh. Right. I have to go through all of this again. Yeah. And when she was just spazzing out on the floor, I was just, the only thing I was thinking to myself, my God, I wish my back could move like that now. <laughs> oh, right. Was, yeah. like, oh. Everything hurts more when you get older. <laughs> oh, no. No, I joke around because I can't. Uh, I'm, I would make the world's worst in ninja because if I just like bend my knee, I'll just hear like, oh, oh that hurt me. Oh, yeah. gosh. And yeah. it's like, even if I'm slaying in bed, it's just like straight on my legs. Just... Yikes. But yeah. youth. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but good for her for having a strong uh, vertebrae. That's a wonderful, that's a great takeaway. I love that you got to that end of Solaris. And you were like, you know the thing though. She's great very bendy, <laughs> very flexible. Well, uh, very flexible. flexible. <laughs> you, you know, someone that I appreciated in this film was Doctor Snout, by Yari Yarvet or whatever. He's got the umlauts above two of his two of the letters. So Wait, like, what are they called? They're called umlauts. I always forget oh. that they're called that. Umlauts. Yeah, umlauts. I did <laughs> not know that. Yeah. Yeah, but he's very much like the he's able to tell Chris, you know, be able to deliver him the hard news and tell him exactly like what's up and kind of put him in his place. Like you're you know, she's a hallucination, right? He's sort of like the middle ground seemingly yes. between Chris and I cannot remember the Sartorius Sartorius, right? Where Sartorius is like the the extreme, right? Dick. Where he's like, he's a bit of a dick. where he's just like science over everything. Mm-hmm. These people, these are not people. You cannot be emotionally attached to like, or even not even saying you can't be like, but there's that scene where Chris is like, are you just jealous? Because I actually have an emotional connection. And he's clearly like, yes, I am jealous. I don't <laughs> like, I, he doesn't. So it seems like snout is like the middle ground between mm-hmm. the two. Well, if that's the case, then who was Doctor Gabarian in this in this station? Was he just the yeah. most susceptible to everything? Then I don't know. Maybe. That was my thing. Like I was really. It's like I wondered how his and Chris's relationship would have been because they were both tight, you know. And Gabarius, I believe, kills himself allegedly before Chris gets up there. So it, it made me wonder throughout the film, like how would have this movie have been different if the guy didn't die, you know? Because they were really tight, and he like made videos for Chris mm-hmm. to watch. Which I think, I don't know how that is. Nice. It, it was nice. You know? nice. I'm probably under- going to be dead when you get up here. <laughs> a little weird to leave somebody a video suicide note. Yeah. Uh, a little jarring, not going to lie. Yeah. We were talking this before, but like, I, it's just amazing that all of the ones that are like, oh, he made this cruddy video footage for you and it's just like the most beautiful like it's still Tar- <laughs> still a Tarkovsky movie within a Tarkovsky movie. So all the raw footage is just like glorious, glorious cinema. <laughs> It's amazing. Their cameras are exceptional. Exceptional security footage. It's like when you found out Paul Verhoeven directed the commercials in RoboCop. Yeah. <laughs> but that's for Call back to our first guest appearance of Brian on the Force Fit Sci-Fi podcast. Which I wanted to say, when you left Ready Player One, you're like, well, see you in three years. It's only been seven months. So... Hey, how about that? <laughs> Glad you guys are punctual. <laughs> on, on top of it. Well, wait, well, <laughs> Three years and seven months. Hey, that's a nice upgrade. So, All right. How about we'll, uh, fast. we'll kind of breeze through the rest of this cast list here. We've got uh, Vladislav uh, Jorzetsky, Jorge, uh, Oh, we're I guess. breezing through this already. Right. <laughs> is he Sartorius? He's, Henry, he's Burton. Okay. Yeah, I think it. he's the, the pilot that's interviewed in the... Yeah. 
Tarkovsky edited <laughs> interrogation video. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nikolai Grinko and Olga Barnett are uh, Chris's mother and father. Uh, Anatoly Sol, Sol- oh God, Solonitsin plays Dr. Sartorius. Um, and then Saw Sar- Sol- Sargissian. I. It looks like they just threw letters together. Russia, <laughs> help us out with this. Come on. You, know, you don't I make this a, easy for us. I have a subscription to Duolingo. I'll just pass it along to you guys so you can join my account so you can start brushing up on your Russian. <laughs> I had read that uh, the guy who plays Sartorius, um, again, I'm a novice with the Tarkovsky stuff, but I'd read that he's like Tarkovsky's muse, basically. He's in like almost all of his stuff. Yep. I think I saw him in Stalker. Yes. It, yes. One of the Stalker guys. So maybe. Yeah, could okay. be. Every director's got their guy. Got their dude. It would be funny if it was Robert De Niro. If if he was also <laughs> if he like at the same time he was doing all the Scorsese's. If he was also in all these Tarkovsky movies, that that'd be a fun thought experiment. Robert De Niro would not save this film. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, I think that's pretty much yeah, all these other people in this. There wasn't really much. It's kind of hard to dig up information on Russian actors because. As Westerners, we don't have access to films that are that were made back then, and we still don't. I mean, we probably could if we went through like back channels or anything like that. But for a long time, like these films were just firmly stuck behind the Iron Curtain. There was no way to watch them. Mm-hmm. And is it? It is. A, it's like amazing too. And I guess speaks to like his, you know, kind of legend that like he's only probably he's like a handful of like kind of name brand like russian directors from that period that really like you know uh rose above that to become like an international mm-hmm. kind of film icon you know in a way of like um you know like kurosawa or something like he just has one of the like you know uh you can list off a name of like these like iconic 20th century um film directors and he's one of them and i feel like that speaks partly to how revered he was uh getting out of that system oh yeah and his style choices is this film as we get into this it's it's just very interesting like when when this ended i think i texted chris or i texted maybe all of you like i don't know if this is the most brilliant film i've seen or just like craziness i don't know what the hell i just watched well craziness is uh, on point <laughs> but uh i want to circle back real quick uh, chris you mentioned that uh, you know it's hard to articulate uh, russian performers throughout um uh, the soviet uh films but if there's one thing that we can articulate is uh, acting styles, and that is Stanislo- uh, St- the Stanislavski's acting method, which is, if you're an actor out there, it is like the they, they teach you this in acting school now. And a lot of like famous actors, I know, I think Al Pacino used this uh, acting technique, but if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, Al, please don't whack me. But <laughs> I have it pulled up on here, and it's, focus- it's focused on intense atmosphere. Its work is... It's emphasized on experimentation, improvisation, and self-discovery. Until his death in 1938, um, he taught the, the elements of the Stanislavski system, which is in the form of relaxation, concentration of attention, imagination, communication, and emotional memory. And we talk about Natalia's or Hari, excuse me, Hari's performance, um, and that a lot of it is like pulled back from emotional memory. Which, if you really think about it, when you start peeling back the the layers and who Hari is uh, discovering who she is and throughout her journey in the film, it adds a lot more weight to the performance. And that's, and I, I've said in earlier that she's the best, per, she gave, gives the best performance in the whole film. And that's why, because of 
of you know creating uh, an emotional memory based off of the from the text itself so mm -hmm. yeah we we, pro we probably will never know what these performers are actually like but we could look at the acting met method that is behind it and that that really drove uh this film and with all that in consideration we could really judge um, based on performances and a little bit about the actor's personality as well so even though hers was a little bit over the top i know like uh, uh kelvin kevin or yeah, that guy. Um, <laughs> he had he was more he was much more reserved, and yeah, he kind of just looked like you know like he looked like he just got is the lead singer of uh, of a Smiths cover band. <laughs> um, but you could tell by his posture and like just the the, the emotional weight that he's carrying mm -hmm. throughout the film because he's uh, I don't know if we're gonna talk about it, but like uh, he's just not willing to revisit his past. I had read a review that said he kind of, from the reviewer's perspective, felt like he kind of doesn't quite know what movie, he, he can't really figure out what movie he's in. And that <laughs> did kind of seem like I could see that. Well, I like the performance, but I could I understand that view. I could understand it too, but I think it's just, this is, it's not, sometimes some of these acting styles may not translate well on the film. I feel like his acting performance would do exceptionally well in a very intimate black box theater space type of environment. Mm -hmm. uh, because yeah, I could definitely see like he, he didn't, he's trying to figure it out or, you know, maybe uh, to your point earlier, Chris, that in European films, there's just so much going on and there's no quiet on set. Maybe he's distracted by the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, by, the, smoke the back, uh, yeah. by the PA asking for more money <laughs> or <laughs> any money or <laughs> government telling them how much film they can ever yeah. use the real yet. <laughs> but yeah, no, I know that was just uh, like, uh, like the Aki method. That whole bit was improvised because it just dawned on me right now. It's like, yeah, Stanislavski. Um, it's an acting method. Uh, look it up. It's uh, pretty basic and standard in all your acting classes that you'll find. Um, and it's universally praised and it's still incredibly relevant to this day. Well, it's amazing when you, you brought up like how crazy it is to think about um, the actress who does Hari trying to, because like you said, it's like part of the Stanislavski thing is incorporating memories and like into your performance and stuff. It sort of reminds me of like when someone does like, a really good performance of like a clone or like a robot mm -hmm. where it's like a nuanced layered performance where you're like how they have to pull such a mental tricks on themselves to figure out like they're not human but they have to imbue like what it would feel like to go through this experience as an inhuman thing it's such a hard it's like it seems yeah, it's, it's tough hard. like it's it hard. seems really tough and you have to work from the script and yeah. anything that's not on a script you have to make it up on your own yeah. but more importantly you have to like as from a from an actor's perspective you have to show you have to show vulnerability in front of the camera because uh, one of the things that they taught me in acting school is that the the, the camera does not lie and if you think you're sad, and but if the camera's saying you're not sad, then you're not sad. Right. Um, but I think uh, Natalia went there with with Hari, killed it. She didn't have dead eyes. No, no. <laughs> All right, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that was good. No, it's Great good point. insight into what Natalia was doing with her performance. Probably doing you too, but that, I think that's the closest thing we'll ever get to it. Well, and then we contrast that with you know. Chris as the protagonist of this movie and definitely kind of seems very dispassionate and almost just detached from 
the sheer emotional weight of the fact that he's leaving Earth, leaving his family, leaving his whole life behind, and then joining, you know, and joining up with this space station to kind of figure out where the hell everybody's gone, and then all of a sudden my dead ex-wife shows up, and it just seems like he, like, like you guys, like Matt and Brian were saying, like, it almost seems like this guy, yeah, doesn't know what movie he's in. No. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't even look, I mean, his outfit was very interesting to me. A leather jacket with like these. A mesh shirt. A mesh shirt. Wearing like the same shirt as Lena Dunham girls. And like. like <laughs> these skinny jean pants with like. Yeah. And a gray <laughs> highlight. Was, like you it's know you're sort of on a of, space station, right? Not some I, underground underground punk club in Moscow. Yeah. Like, it's, it's sort of it's totally like one of those outfits that you watch and you're like, honestly, if you wear that like in Bushwick now, it might be kind of good. <laughs> like it sort of works with, like if you're in the right area. I, I was going to space station. Well, it's clear not that those million rubles went to like set design and not costumes. <laughs> But I love that it's – and, like, you know, this is sort of, I feel like, the thing people say about Star Wars, right? It was, like, part of, like, the invention of that is that it looks so lived in. And mm-hmm. this, in a much, like, different way, looks like some stuff has happened here for years, right? Like, this has been – because they went bring up when the – is it Burton who, when he shows the tape, it's like, yeah, that was, like, 20, 30 years ago. So this stuff has just been happening at this space station for, like, decades, you know, and it certainly looks like it looks that. like a bunch of meth heads broke their lease and just decided to trash <laughs> the place before leaving. <laughs> right. Except it's, his room. Chris's room was pristine. Yeah, the one room that they didn't mess yeah. up. Yeah. The one room where all the budget went to. <laughs> uh, whoever the Soviet version of Marie Kondo was back then in space. That scene where he was walking around like this doesn't give me joy. And he like throws it in the trash. It's really mm-hmm. great. <laughs> I love this movie. It's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, pretty we, great. we know. We know, Sean. We know. It's pretty I, great. I enjoyed like Chris's reaction when his wife comes back is immediately to like finagle her into a spaceship and just send her back home. Like, what are you doing here? Ah! It's a great. It's such a good visualization of like he doesn't. He can't comprehend this, so he's like, "Let me just shoot this into space." <laughs> It's very much like a brutish man response. Like, I don't know what to do with this, so I'm going to smash it and destroy it. Light myself on fire. It's the equivalent of blocking somebody on your phone. Yes. Yeah. It's like. But then Snout comes out. He's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I've been there, done we that. Did that. We're just looking there. at him like, you know, she's going to come back, right? Like, do we tell him, like, no, no, let him find out. Who among us? It's like such a funny. Like, That's why I love Snout the whole film. He's like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> What are you going to do? Yeah. He's funny. the epitome of the shoulder shrug. Like, I don't know. It's crazy clearly here. something has happened on this station that has caused everyone else to flee, right? So why are you sending one psychologist to try to figure out what's going on? Why not send more scientists? Why not send like an actual investigative crew or a team of astronauts that can resupply this station? Why send one guy who's clearly looks like somebody peed in his cereal and sent him on his way to the station. <laughs> he's the active embodiment of depression. I feel like that's Chris. Right. Like he's just, he doesn't seem like he wants to be there. And I don't think he does any psych work up there. He doesn't I mean, really like open the notebook. Nobody sits on a couch. I mean, <laughs> heaven knows he's miserable now. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so tell me, why do you think you're hallucination, hallucinating a four-meter-tall child? Tell me. <laughs> and they even call him out. They're like, what, what work have you done? <laughs> Other than sitting and banging your ex-wife right. for me. Just hanging out with your <laughs> ex. They probably didn't have a, a good budget in the state in the space station, so they had to hire like an entry-level. <laughs> right. 
The health insurance is not great on Solaris. <laughs> they don't have a great, you know, they have Cigna or whatever. Yeah, the only... They just, they have to, like, do work with, well, look, it's, we couldn't get, like, this is a student at uh, the psych school or something, exactly. I'm just, like, I still couldn't get over the fact that he just wasted a spaceship with the lady, and they're, it's like, resources. like, how many spaceships do they have? They have, like, 30 of them. How do we know he really wasted a spaceship, though? I mean, if Hari's hallucina- uh, hallucination, what if the spaceship he put her on was one, too? Well, that's the thing, is, hey, did he, was he ever even on Earth? I don't know. <laughs> That's my whole thing. I don't know. The hey. kids were afraid of a horse. He shows up at the end. Oh, I'm back home. This, is, not. this movie definitely kind of throws you through like a definite like you know mind fumble here. Hundred percent. It's it's insane and like it's crazy to think that Darkovsky crafted this movie the right. way he did. Right. Well, like there are scenes at the beginning that like you know. Um, in terms of how that ends, in terms of the movie, we're spoiling the movie, right? We're, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's 50 years old. It's 50 years old. old. <laughs> Look, People have had an opportunity out, to see it. Hey, check out Solaris if you haven't already. You got to see this thing. Oh, uh, please don't. don't. <laughs> but there are scenes in the beginning where I'm like, so it looks kind of funny. I'm like, okay, so there's kind of, maybe he's shooting day for night. There's like when it rains in the beginning. Um, it's still light out, and I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." I get, maybe it's like you know a stylistic choice. And then at the end, when the ending happens, and they, they zoom out, um, and he's like on an island in Solar- Solaris when he thinks he's still home. Like, it does make me like I haven't rewatched it, but I was thinking it must be such an interesting rewatch movie because you're like, "Is that a choice?" Because that's how that just looks, or is that a choice because he's actually. Maybe he was never. Maybe he was always on Solaris this entire time. You know, it's like it's it's a very fun like uh, mental game you can play. It's a Tarkovsky way. You're right. It could be. You rewatched it, right? I did. So, you watched it twice. I watched it twice. Chris. Oh my goodness! Six Lord. hours. Re- were you second? drinking? No, no. Yeah, I have not relapsed. No, that would be awful. Oh, good. No, good, I. Good. Uh, it was. Uh, <laughs> that would be a great if this movie caused you like. That would be a great like. Uh, this movie was so bad, I relapsed. It seems like I'm sure there's like a film reviewer who's done that trick. Uh, but it truly could be like you're like this movie is so. I mean, bad. I get that Battlefield Earth made me want to drink until I forgot about watching that movie. <laughs> was, yeah, the Sound uh, of Thunder. Oh. We've done some bad movies on this. Yeah, Battlefield. But this, but that's the problem. Like with this, I was like, it's not bad. Like the movies that we've seen. You know, no. Battlefield Earth was terrible. It was terrible. This is not demonstrably bad. I think this is. Like, I don't even know if this was made for the right reasons. Hmm. Like, because, I mean, this is based off of, um, like, a Polish novel that came out in the 60s. And this wasn't even the first adaptation of that novel. There was a a Soviet television play that came out a few years before this. Mm -hmm. But Tarkovsky saw, like, Western sci-fi films as being, like, emotionally devoid of any sort of meaning. So and he singled out 2001: A Space Odyssey as like the worst, the single worst <laughs> offender of this, you know, just absolute devoid of any sort of depth or anything. Right. Mm, and hilarious. he sought to, in this quest to make sort of like the anti 2001, I think he made like the perfect Russian companion piece to that movie. Right, right. Uh, so fun. I think that is so funny that he because like they just came out with that. Um, 
the sight and sound list that like you know every 10 years right where they ask a bunch of like people in cinema and stuff to rank like the top 100 movies i feel like ever almost uh, so many like uh the directors like here are my top 10 that came out had 2001 on it it's so funny to picture like tarkovsky watching 2001 and just be like this is garbage <laughs> like this is so bad <laughs> it's very funny to me um but you're right like that he wanted to make like his like answer to i saw like i think it was the ebert review that said like 2001 is like an exploration of like man's outward journey and like this is an exploration of man's inward journey Mm -hmm. it has like sort of like his companion piece that is trying to deal with like the exact opposite thing almost well in his effort to make the anti-2001 he even like copies 2001 he uses a piece (laughs) from Sebastian Bach is like the main theme of the film. Right. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, and, and if you've seen you, I mean, everybody knows that, you know, 2001 uses Oslo Sprock Zarathustra as like the main opening theme of that movie. Da-da. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's like when someone does a cover of a song because they're like, that song sucks. Let me do a better version. <laughs> it's like very weird. Well, and it's, it's, it's now, I think what you would call like the Streisand effect. It's like you're trying to pull attention away from something, but by doing so, you wind up creating more attention for it. Yeah. Like people are still going to watch 2001 A Space Odyssey, but probably more so now because Tarkovsky hated that movie so much. (laughs) Why does this man hate this movie? Exactly. Yeah. I I think I, I almost think like Tarkovsky was trying to solve a problem that didn't quite exist yet. And I get where he's coming from. I mean, because think about like the quality of science fiction movies that were coming out before Solaris comes out. Mm-hmm. We don't have movies like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. E.T. hasn't come out. Neither has Blade Runner or John Carpenter's The Thing. All movies like that we you know have talked about or will talk about at some point, and movies that not only are held as titans of the science fiction drama uh, genre, but movies in general, mm-hmm. and. I think Tark- if Tarkovsky had just waited like 15 years, I think this argument of his would have just completely gone away. But given the type of person he is, no. he, don't, he don't got time for that. He no. would have hated he him. He don't got time for that. Yeah, I was but like it, listening to his critiques on like cinema coming here, and yeah, he like hated everything. He's like, it's all oh, yeah. about marketing. If you have to market the movie for it to be a success, it's not good art. But he like very, to your point, like very consciously, consciously right, was trying to be like, I don't think he was like, I don't think there is like a deep philosophical sci-fi that i've seen that i appreciate so he very much came in with like that kind of uh mm-hmm. f- like that was like his intended goal coming in he was going to come in guns blazing make the philosophical emotionally deep movie he wanted to make it just happened to be set in the science fiction genre right and he did that scene with like the lo- the car driving through Tokyo, yeah. <laughs> wherever the hell he shot. Hey, if he had managed to stick a lot, uh, stay alive through you know the 2010s, like and see the movies of Denny Villeneuve, like I think oh, he would have yeah. changed his tune. Like watching Arrival, I was thinking Blade a Runner lot. 2049 right. and Dune, I think he would have changed his tune. I was thinking a ton, obviously about Arrival. I'm sure that was like a big influence. Was like Solaris. I'm sure it was like a big influence on the writing of Arrival and like Villeneuve and stuff. Just in terms of like. It's very, very similar, right? Like, has the same kind of themes and mm-hmm. stuff like that. It was very interesting to think about. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know if it was a problem that didn't exist, but I think it was a problem that people just were not thinking about. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. How did you think? So, we talked a little bit about, you know, he, this, he was during the Soviet Union. 
he had to like finagle everything with the Soviet Union, correct? Like with editing, the cuts, like even the amount of film he could use. You mean the Soviet Union wasn't reasonable? <laughs> chill, dude. Real relaxed. me shock. Really chill. Well, yeah, everything was reviewed, right? Everything had to be certified by, like, you know, it was basically like, you know, all government uh, had to, all, everything had to be approved. If you watch the miniseries Chernobyl, it's actually a great behind-the-scenes look in terms of how the Soviet government actually functions. Everything is committee. Wow. Everything is basically, you know, like kissing ass of the person above you. And the filmmaking apparatus is no different. Everything is state-run. And so are you saying that the Soviet Union ran like corporate America? <laughs> <laughs> like Disney, dare we say? And it, and it failed. Kevin Feige was the head of the film. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> if we had the time, like I would love to talk about just the Soviet filmmaking apparatus because prior to to the Russian Revolution and even a short time after that, there was no filmmaking. There was nothing. The the Romanovs controlled everything and then post Russian Revolution and the communists are in power, then you see filmmaking sort of start. You see the movie theaters start opening up and people going to them, but it's not until the release of um Battleship Potemkin in 1925, where then Soviet filmmaking really takes off. But then, but it's all propaganda films. It's educational films, like you know your people and your work farms in Siberia. You know, like here's how you break rocks. Here's how you shovel snow. Here's how you pile dead bodies so they don't you know fall into a pile and kill you. <laughs> Very entertaining stuff, obviously. Very enjoyable. Very dry though. Yeah. But it's but then it's post World War Two and Joseph Stalin's in power and you know what Joseph Stalin loved the war. <laughs> he, besides war and murdering his own constituents, empathy obviously he loved <laughs> famously empathetic man. Joseph Stalin loved the westerns of John Ford, and there's he even commissioned Soviet filmmakers to basically make Soviet versions of John Ford westerns. He loved westerns and even force members of his own Politburo to stay up till four in the morning, just getting absolutely drunk and watching the same Westerns over and over again. <laughs> oh, it's so, it's really funny to think about that too, in terms of like, that's what they liked. And then, you know, like in comparison to this, which is like slow, meditative, like non-narrative and like in some senses, like avant-garde, like it's such a like drastic change from like, and this is still very much behind, during the era of the Cold War, obviously. So it's there are there is films that are being made by the Soviet, you know, cinema committee or whatever you want to call it. But it's all very propagandistic. It's all pro communism. There are westerns being made. There are movies that are set in America being made by the Soviet Union, but they're told from the perspective of Native Americans who view you know Americans as colonizers and genociders, which you know in some cases, I mean, we don't have time to really get into the atrocities perpetrated by the American government on its own soil against mm-hmm. the native people living here. It's another episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another episode. But there were many films made by the Soviets during that time that told that point of view or told that story and gave a very pro-communist message. Like You couldn't even watch James Bond films in the Soviet Union. They were banned for such a long time. And it's not even until the mid-90s, the first you know, post-Cold War James Bond film, is still it's shot in russia in st petersburg but it's still very much a cold war story in a lot of ways and kind Mm -hmm. of dealing with you know britain's and russia's place post in the world post cold war so there's still 
and even now like putin i'm sure controls everything rolling out through soviet cinema or russian cinema i should say now it's it's weird to think about how little their filmmaking or at least their techniques and storytelling has not changed over the last 100 years Mm -hmm. i would say it's it's probably different than french filmmaking (laughs) yeah (laughs) i mean french filmmaking is very avant-garde and they're able to like branch out and tell more stories but i mean it's I mean, if you look at Russian filmmaking over the last, God, even since Putin came to power, it's just all very propagandistic. Mm-hmm. And and you look at Solaris and even other works, Tarkovsky is like sort of the outliers of that. Like he fought against the censorship mm-hmm. that or the suggestions that the state committee wanted him to do. He's like, no, this is the movie I'm making. You're not going to stop me. Yeah. And I really like, I'd rather like, he really was one of the few, if not the only like director who could really push back in that era and be like, no, I'm not, you know, they would tell him, uh, I'd read like they had tried to take some of like, you know, the spirituality elements out of this and stuff like that. And he would just be like, no. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, you know, even everyone else would obviously be so scared. And I think it's like, again, such a like, rep, like, speaks to his reputation as like the only man who or only person who could legitimately like push back against like the soviet government to be like no i am making my movie mm-hmm. it's crazy i make movie you don't stop me <laughs> <laughs> the more i learn about this man he just seems more like or james cameron I seems to emulate him more I and more say oh, it. i would love to see tarkovsky's uh avatar <laughs> Just like oh, really God. slow, real, and just like these like really long shots of like the water. You do realize that's gonna be like eight hours long. Ugh, it sounds great. I want to. <laughs> I don't want to see like a Tarkovsky directed Avatar. I want to see Tarkovsky, like prime Tarkovsky, take on prime James Cameron in a bare in a knuckle boxing fight. And I'm putting Look. everything on Tarkovsky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's I, a close one. I think they both die. First of all, but no, I yeah. think Tarkovsky wins, but like he would stay alive just long enough to see Cameron die and then die immediately afterwards. Right. <laughs> so, He's uh, like, I lived in Siberia. I will take you on. Like, my mission's complete. Unless I did, it, I did summer camp in Siberia. This is nothing. Unless it took place at the bottom of the ocean, then James Cameron would win because it's home turf. It is. You know, it's like his home turf. He like, loves the ocean. We're in the Marina Trench. This is my, Neutral you know. Neutral ground, Greenland. It's like Packers at Lambeau. It's like, hey, these are my people. You know, these James, are my fish. James Cameron is so funny. He's actually, he shot a documentary and like redid the door scene on Titanic. I saw, yeah. Just to prove to people that He like it commissioned to study. Weirdly, this is very, a, a weird footnote, but weirdly, um, I the place I work uh, on the elevator, it's one of those elevators that has like fun facts. And they have, <laughs> one of those fun, fun facts that keeps coming up is like James Cameron just commissioned to study to see if the two, uh, Leo and uh, Kate Winslet could both be on the door and they can't. And I was like, why is this showing up at the elevator going to my, it's not like a cinema um, it's not like a movie fun facts thing. It'll be like the weather outside is thirty degrees. By the way, uh, anyway, that's a it weird. It doesn't footnote. matter. There's a whole generation of <laughs> oh, girl, yeah. of women who believe that Leonardo DiCaprio could have fit on that door. Oh, there's Reddit. But they can't. Yeah, they threats. No. Yeah. No. He would have yeah. flown off. But this isn't a podcast about the uh, the level of. <laughs> buffoonery that james cameron per, uh, perpetuates <laughs> nor is a titanic podcast because <laughs> titanic isn't sci-fi 
Not to yet. To our knowledge, yeah. To our knowledge. No, this is a uh, Solaris podcast. <laughs> right. Which we are loving it. What did you – so were there any styles that he did, like any like choices in this film where you were just like, this man is out of his mind? Ryan, I know you've got some thoughts on that. Yes, it's the slow pace. <laughs> like that, the first hour of the film, and I know it's all ex, exposition, exposition heavy, but it just dragged like so much. And first of all, let me pretest, um, preface this by saying, I originally watched this film, I was at the gym, I was on the bike, <laughs> and I was the, just ide- the way he meant for you to watch it <laughs> on the so bike. in ideal circumstances, and I was just like, "Well, the best movies are meant to be watched on a smartwatch." hundred <laughs> percent. Oh no, I got my I got my phone right, right in front of me, and I was just like biking. And I was just like, "What the?" This what? is like, uh, like you know, if Christopher Nolan hears this conversation. He like jumps off a cliff, right? Like, he's just like not the bike. Well, the thing, the thing is, is that you know, I. I, I, I mentioned this earlier. I w- it made me wish that HBO Max or any streaming service had like a playback speed option because I found myself just like skipping ahead a little bit. It's like, okay, come on, let's get over it. And I understand the intent behind the slow pace style and, you know, momentum building. But at some point, it's just like, if nothing's happening, nothing's happening. Like, we got to get the show ro- rolling. Well, I, so I'll preface by saying like I took a like uh, avant-garde film class in college that was like one of my favorite classes I took and what was so interesting about that class like seeing a lot of these movies right is like um, you have to kind of like retrain your brain about how to watch them it's like I saw in the Ebert review that he was sort of like a lot of these shots and these scenes it's like yes you can see them as boring or you know you could you know try to like take them in and contemplate like what is coming before you know the movie was coming up it's like tarkovsky it's like one of those movies is like it wants you to be like meditating on it sort of like trying to reteach you like how to actually like watch the film itself um uh i was thinking about that though and also in the sense of i did get a little sleepy um and i would often get sleepy in that class because i would like watch we would have like a screening every wednesday and it was also my busiest class day so it was very hard not to fall asleep um when you're watching like a movie where someone just falls asleep like we watched a warhol movie where it's just shots of a man who's sleeping and and i was like how am i not gonna fall asleep like but it's one of the it's like he's like the one of the pioneers right of like when people talk about like slow cinema Mm -hmm. is like he's considered one of those uh you know big icons of that sort of phrase it could be just me not this may not be catering to my liking it, it doesn't goose in my geese you know uh, but, <laughs> it's very valid totally uh, valid. but it's like but i just found myself like again wanting to jump ahead and that might be because of uh you know the films that we've been exposed to lately it's like okay let's just get the ball, ball let's get going on here but at the same time you know it, you know when it comes from storytelling uh you, you, from in, in my perspective, like you got you got to hook them in and you got to give them a reason to stick around. Because if you imagine like just putting this film in today's cinema, no way, no no chance. I mean, we I are mean, walking out. Well, there are going to be. There is a man well, who well, did hey. release a movie. 
James they have Cameron long takes. Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, look, I, I mean, like an Avatar too. Like, Can we go five minutes close. without talking not about James close. Cameron, please? <laughs> you know, Sean, when you cut this podcast, you're gonna take out a lot of James Cameron. Yeah, it's <laughs> control F and find. But Cameron. but no, it's like no. I I I the slow pace didn't agree with me, and even like in the second half, it got better. But there are times where it's just like. Oh, this whole like the whole floating scene yeah. uh, between uh, uh, Kelvin and Hari, which I I thought that was like when I when I looked up, oh, there's a meaning behind it. It's like a metaphor, or whatever. I get, I picked up on that, but at the same time, at that point in the movie, it was just like the slow paces. Just it just I was ready to get some brew up some coffee, and it's eleven <laughs> o'clock at night. Fair. I mean, you know, it's very much that like he wanted to make movies that were like high art right like that was part of his like motivation mm-hmm. was like i want cinema to be seen in the same category as you know great paintings great music all this stuff and like part of that is he wanted to like maul on his movies and maul on these like philosophical existential questions i had written a quote down for one of the things i read that he said uh it wrote one of his journals the point of art is to prepare a person for death which I thought was very funny. Uh, it's Trust just like, me, after this film, that makes a whole lot of sense. <laughs> Christ, that's bleak. Isn't it's that very bleak. bleak. So bleak, but makes like all the sense in the world that the person who makes a movie like this is like, hey, it checks out. We got to make this, prepare you, <laughs> you know, all the time. Well, between the four of us here today, I mean, we've seen like probably thousands of movies between all of us. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, for me personally, this stands out as one of the most glacially paced movies I've ever watched. <laughs> Like, and, and here's the thing, like, The Godfather came out in this same year as Solaris did. I mean, granted, Solaris doesn't come out, does, doesn't release in the United States until four years later, but The Godfather is roughly the same length as this and is paced much better. He was just trying to have you feel the mundane I'm watching this as a layperson, and I'm finding there's, like, 35 minutes of movie that can be taken out of this. Are we we comparing this film to The Godfather? No. Like, Godfather stands in a class above itself. Oh, yeah. It don't don't even compare, but, like, I'm just saying, like, there are techniques of making – you can make – a two-hour and forty-minute film that doesn't feel like a two-hour and forty-minute film. Not to compare, but it's, yeah. you know, I don't like. I don't. Know. I'm know. not trying to like to like. Be, I'm not. I would. I didn't watch this movie like. Oh my god! But I do think it's like hard to compare in some ways because it's it's not the movie he's trying to make, right? He's not trying to make his whole. You were talking about his whole opinion of like cinema mm-hmm. was it's like you know you're you know. It's your. It's all marketing. It's all manipulation. It's all stuff like that. Like it's, he truly is trying to like slow your brain down as a viewer and really have to think about things. It's still <laughs> a very artful film, and it's still oh, very yeah. emotionally deep. Right. But it even if he had made the edits of like taking time out of the film, all of that is still there. Sure. There's mm-hmm. a lot of just dead, dead film that he puts in there. Like driving through the city. I still cannot figure out the point of that. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, it's there's a gotta, long way. There's got to be a fan edit of this film somewhere. I mean, just really cuts I just out all wanted the them to kick one of those like see-through things that was on the ground just sure. one time. One time, like just, all of those, all of the things that we were talking about, all the philosophical discussions, all of the themes that are still present in this movie. But like all of the dead space could have just been cut it cut out of it. I feel like it would have a much impactful. Um, uh, meaning if they got rid of all that dead space because it's like when we talk about pace uh, you want 
people keep thinking. And I maybe that was deliberate of the slow pace. It forces the viewer to think about it. But at the same time, you're asking a lot from a, a viewer to like, you know, just sit there and be patient, think with their thoughts. But I, I felt like I understand the intent. I just didn't think it it, it was executed very well. I think, sure. yeah, I, I'm, and I like, I hate to be, I don't want to be like, I'm not like devil's advocate about this whole movie. Again, I am not like, this is the greatest thing I ever saw. I gave it a four on the five on the letter, but the old letterbox. It's not like, you know, I'm not like, a lot of people think it's a masterpiece. I don't know. I'm not really like, uh, that's not for me to say, but I'm, I've, I'm kind of of the opinion that like you, it's not like, a movie is like the movie it's trying to be and sometimes you have to like try to meet the movie where it is right like a movie kind of tells you throughout its runtime like what it's trying to do mm-hmm. and i like agree because i did get sleepy i do sometimes <laughs> have a hard time with movies that are like in the quote-unquote canon and you put them on and you're like okay i do have to do laundry at some point so i'm hoping this speeds up just a little but you know some when i th- think about it in terms of like what they're trying the the people who made it especially like someone like Tarkovsky like what Mm -hmm. he's trying to do it does it makes sense to me and it is sort of like coming at uh you have to come at it from like an angle of like what is this movie trying to be and is it trying to be like the best version of that kind of a thing Mm-hmm. But again, I'm that is not everyone's opinions are valid. I'm not a like you know. Oh, you gotta love this movie where they uh, <laughs> they go they drive around Tokyo for just a little bit. Now. Like, yeah, I mean, like, you don't have to, also, Nobody has to love this movie. This is also pre-internet. Take. This is pre-internet and Soviet Russia eyes. So maybe they just you know didn't have a lot to do back then either. Well, so the we, time was there. They're like, oh, this uh, is a short film. This is fast paced for them. Who knows? And we've we've kind of talked, we've brushed on this a little bit on just how avant-garde Tarkovsky was for the time. And I think kind of like a good thing to kind of like close out our main discussion on the movie is like this is this thought experiment. Because when Tarkovsky made this movie, and if you look at the other side of the world in the West, you had filmmakers like George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, and even John Milius coming up and making their own brand of films and changing the landscape of Hollywood forever. So I'm guessing like what I want to ask you guys is, do you think if Tarkovsky grew up in the West, would he fit in with this group or where would he fit in in this group? It's such an interesting question because it's like, would it be, is it because you have to, I have to think about it in terms of like, is he trying to come up uh, with that group? And if so, is he trying to like radically differentiate himself from the types of movies those are ma- they're making, or is he trying to make similar types of movies that fit into that kind of? And I'm not asking in terms of like you need to answer that question. It's just an interesting idea, like you know, because obviously there's a whole subcategory, subgenre, and with like miniature subgenres of American and Western avant-garde cinema that are happening at the same time as like the new Hollywood type directors. So it's like, does he just immediately get like pushed into that category or does he find his like niche in like a Hollywood type of system? It's just interesting. I don't, I mean, Tarkov- there's no answer to that, but Tarkovsky would have easily been the oldest of this group. I mean, cause he was born in 1932 and Spielberg was, you know, not even in diapers at that point. And it's, I don't like, I I like to think that Tarkovsky would have been accepted in this group just because he had radical ideas. 
But also, too, Tarkovsky was very open in his criticism of just about everyone and everything that walked the planet. <laughs> He's a very what? angry man. Yeah. Also, interesting about because, like, a big, obviously, a big part of like the new Hollywood stuff was that the studios were like, "We don't know what we're doing." You know, all of these huge sound and mu- music ripoffs we've made are destroying our studios because they cost so much. They're all bulky. They're so expensive. So we're just gonna let these kids from this newfangled idea of film school start like hey if you want to make a decision you make a decision like kind of thing like they kind of gave like you know the keys to this up and coming crop so it's really interesting to think about like what does Tarkovsky do if he's here with like complete studio backing during that period where you you can make the story you want to make you just have to make it within the confines of the studio system right that's really interesting you know it is an interesting question but I don't think he would last here in the west um, because too, diff- too hard conditions. Um, be- no, I don't I, know. I, <laughs> well, that's it. But I, 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 but you mentioned uh, all the film directors. You know, Spielberg, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, Scorsese. There's one thing about all of those directors that just separate them from. Um, I almost say Tchaikovsky, but that's somebody else. Is <laughs> um, <laughs> that they know how to like they know how to hook up a viewer into their story and keep them in their seats. Yes. And I know that, yeah, this is, this is an, an, an arts film. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it, isn't it like a criterion uh, remaster out there or something like that? There is. He's but, certainly but, like one of the like criterion darlings. He's but, like one of those. But here's, but, but that's the thing. You have to keep the user, not the user, sorry, uh, the, the viewer engaged throughout the film, because if you don't, they're going to start thinking about their laundry. They're going to start thinking about <laughs> uh, the chores that, or some of the things that they could have been doing. But instead, you're, you're, the intent is there to like force them to think about their lives, to think about the, the past traumas that they have yet to confront. But it just doesn't work. Like we talk about uh, Godfather. You're immediately brought into the Godfather right away. It's like, oh, it's Don Corleone's uh, um, is a. Uh, the, the, the daughter's wedding and it's like I'll make it an offer kind of feels, you know stuff like that but for this it's like 20 minutes of just nothingness and just you know Kevin just being you know all mopey you know thinking, I, but you know and but, I I don't want to like the, but I, at the same time <laughs> as from a as a cinematographer a thousand percent he belongs in that conversation because this movie is shot beautifully from a storytelling perspective it could have just been polished up. And yeah, I know we also talk about mar- like marketing and stuff. It, this movie would not last that long because, you know, you have to like, if you market this movie as like an avant-garde piece, then maybe you might have a chance. But, you know, I don't think that viewers from the mainstream audience perspective will, will appreciate this film as much as like, you know, as, you know, film buffs. But I think like, you know, and I've, I, re- I recently hear somebody talk about this on a podcast of like, we do sometimes fall in this category, especially in like the Western mm-hmm. uh, cinema viewer of like, you know, a good story is like the hero's journey, right? Like yeah. that's the good story is like, you have obstacles. It fits kind of a formula. And sometimes I think like, and I fall into this category. I think you'll watch something that doesn't, quite fit into that category um doesn't quite have those same elements and it is easy you know again speaking for myself as well to watch something that doesn't fit into that and you're like oh this is bad and sometimes i have to remind myself like i can't walk into a museum expecting at the arcade Mm -hmm. you know it's sort of like (laughs) one of those like i have to kind of like 
figure out, you know, what's my connection? What's my into this? And sometimes that's realizing like, you know, I thought this was going to be a surprise party and it's not. Mm -hmm. So I have to sit, sit around, you know, the mahogany seats with these, uh, these, you know, college, you know, professors and just observe, you know, whatever, like Mm -hmm. you have to, like, it's, it's like, I, I, I I try, I'm like shying away sometimes from trying to not feel like this is good versus bad as opposed to like, this is a different intention than a lot of those movies that a are thousand. considered like Western, yeah. like not Westerns around, but like <clears throat> popular entertainment kind of movie. It this this was in Soviet cinemas for fifteen years. <laughs> fifteen years. Gosh, they did it rocks. in limited runs because again, there weren't a ton of movie theaters in Russia. But they ran it in limited blocks for 15 years. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense for the long length of this film. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's amazing. 15 years. Well, that's like the dark side of the moon version uh, of the... Well, and that's... I mean, it's certainly unprecedented to us. I mean, the longest... Yeah. Like, I, like, in my freelance work and in doing, like, this podcast, the longest I've ever seen a movie stick around in theaters is about eight or nine months. Maybe a yeah. year. But that's you have you know how much money you have to continuously be making. I think the the biggest example I can think of is the Clint Eastwood film Unforgiven, because that released I think in like June in the in 1992. But then it got a boost after it won Best Picture at the Academy Awards, and then they kept running the movie. Oh yeah, for a full for it was in theaters for a full year. Well, that movie's just incredible. And Saving Private Ryan, I think, had a very long theatrical run as well. Mm-hmm. The first Avatar, I mean, I, God, I think that was still in theaters until June of 2010. Mm-hmm. I would say how much it speaks to, to the, like, they're not being home video, and they're not being, obviously, streaming, but they're not being some a lot of ways to watch this outside of going to a cinema. So if there was like a popular movie, I would assume particularly in Russia at the time, would just be like, hey, you want to go see Solaris again for like the 38th <laughs> time? It's it, the movie that came out seven years ago. You know, it's like partly maybe speaks to that. And I know there are examples of that too. And like some, uh, you know, in American cinemas of like, oh, the, we're going again to see Bambi for, you know, <laughs> 20 years ago, you know, stuff like that. But certainly not to that extent. Right. To continuously be in theaters, absolutely not. Yeah, it's a pretty good legacy, though. Yeah, I would say. But I mean, Tarkovsky wasn't the only one who viewed this as a failure. You know who else got really PO'd about it? Who? James Cameron? (laughs) (laughs) No. no. Great guess, but no. I didn't bring that one up this time, right? (laughs) Actually, the original writer of the novel Stanislaw Lem got so mad at Tarkovsky, and they basically feuded about this movie basically until Tarkovsky died. Like Tar- like Lem hated the fact that Tarkovsky diverged so much from the novel, and Tarkovsky fired back at Lem saying he didn't understand cinema. <laughs> so it's, it's just like this weird feud of like people who are in opposite medias. Just like yeah. I'm mad that you ruined my book. Well, you don't understand movies. It's like, well, it's got that like Kubrick Stephen King thing, right? Where Stephen shine, King, yeah. yeah, where he's like. Seem King's like, ah, what a crap movie, right? And everyone's like, no. <laughs> it's like a really good he movie. He prefers a TV movie of The Shining. Right. But it's which, uh... it's sort of like that argument of like, I it, it makes sense, right? Where like, if, the, if it's so radically different than like the author's intention, obviously the author is going to be like, why did you do this? This is terrible. Um, but you also get the other side, right? From the Tarkovsky's perspective of like, I'm trying to make like a movie. I'm not trying to write, rewrite your book or well, like, this is why you don't involve authors in making the movie because no. it's their baby. They're very protective of it. They don't want to see any changes to it. Like, 
that that was Tarkovsky's mistake. You just can't make everyone happy, Chris. No. <laughs> and I don't think there's really much for like toxic fandom that I found other than uh us, the two of us. Well, yeah. <laughs> Beating up on Brian for disliking a three and a half hour slow non narrative movie. I guess I guess the two of us are the toxic fans. We, we are the toxic fandom, man. Yeah. I only saw on IMDb a couple of people were like angry about his portrayal of gravity. And how like okay. her hair was falling down and, and wasn't portrayed. I did not think you were going to say this that. This was shot in the seventies, okay? Uh, did it not was think made for less that. than nine hundred thousand dollars. You're lucky to get the effects you got. All right? Yeah, they're still great. good. But yeah. but my favorite is uh, there's one that that five out of seven people found interesting. <laughs> it said uh, when Chris was standing in the rain near the beginning of the film. The camera tilts down to the table to show a cup of coffee and various other items. The cut to the next shot of Chris shows him to have moved, which seems reasonable as a small amount of time has elapsed. But all the items on the table are now in different configurations. See, it's sort of this feels like that thing where if you're like a fan of the Matrix, like I am, anytime someone's like, did you notice that thing? You just go like, oh, yeah, because they're in the Matrix. It makes sense. You know, like if you're a fan of this type of movie, and I guess I fall to that category even though i will admit i did get sleepy if you're a fan of it you just go like well yeah they're on solaris i don't know it's like any type of like mm-hmm. when that dog turned into a horse you're like yeah i don't know it's solaris baby it's like solaris. what are you gonna do it's george lucas like writing off jedi like you know leaps in the star wars movies is like jedi abilities yeah 100 yeah. percent. yeah it's that kind of thing where it's like hey it's part of my universe like, don't dig too deep in the plot holes it's just the matrix <laughs> and its jedi abilities when it rains apparently stuff gets reconfigured on a table look hey reality's crazy man it's, it's so like long. you just do one of those and yeah well perfect well Anyone else have any thoughts before we give our ratings, which I'm sure you can figure out? I'm just curious. Has anyone? I haven't. Has anyone seen the remake, the Soderbergh remake? No. No, that's something we didn't even talk about. It's, it's crazy to think that like Steven Soderbergh like thought like, oh, I I can remake this movie. Right. Yeah, with George Clooney, right? <laughs> with Clooney. It, yeah, with Clooney and like and like Soderbergh when he made this, he was like the hottest filmmaker at the time. He was just like traffic was like the absolute darling during the award season. Yeah, and he thought like, "Well, I can remake this movie because, like, again, it's his it's director's vanity just kind of coming into it." And how like, did that movie do? Was not great. <laughs> oh, it hurt. Like, I mean, got like Shocker. critical acclaim, but people were like, "No, thank you." I had read that like that. I I shouldn't speak on the movie because I haven't seen it, but I had read that it spends much more time on the idea that the movie does portray, but it deeps, digs in deeper to that idea of like his ex can only be the person that he uh, remembers her to be. And it's only from his perspective. Mm. So like the move, the Soderbergh's much more interested in that kind of character idea of Oof. like, how is this, you know, configuration of, you know, memory and like, are, do we have, you know, everyone has a tainted idea of memory based off their own personal experience. So like you're only imagining one, your side of a person. Can we ever really know a person or that connected to even, you know, so he, I think like Soderbergh is much more interested in that I've read. I should say again, I haven't seen it. Well, I mean, it'll certainly be on our list. I'm sure we'll cover it at some point. Absolutely. Oh God. <laughs> Sexy you can space. all come back for Solaris too. Uh, I'll take that a might be check. more. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think with all that in mind, let's uh, let's actually review, rate 
Solaris, shall we? So on our unique scale of the Force Fed Sci-Fi podcast of would it watch, would watch, would own, it would host a viewing party. Brian, I feel like you're going to have the most entertaining <laughs> review rating. So let's start with you. Man, this is just some old, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> Look, I know, I'm not going to watch this movie. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take it, put it in a box, ship it, burn the boat. Every, just as soon as it sinks to the bottom of the ocean, I'm going to tell James Cameron to get in the submarine, find it, pull it out, and burn it again. Look, this film, it's beautiful. It's it's really intriguing to, to look at. And like I couldn't keep my eyes off it because it is shot very well. But when you're trying to tell a complicated story there's there's a level of like ego uh, behind uh, the storytelling because it was just so slow it's like oh you gotta feel this feeling the the one film that i was thinking about while watching this that i could sort of compare this to is a it's a totally different film but it's don't worry darling and that is because that film is like doing too much and the pace was like it was a little bit quicker but it it kind of just like Ask, it's trying to be so metaphorical that a lot of the meaning behind that movie goes over the, uh, the the viewer's head, and I feel like that was the same case in this in this film. Um, look, I I totally understand his legacy. I totally respect uh, the director. I totally respect that the, you know the influence behind it, but this is just not a. It's not my cup of tea. Like if you want to watch it, go ahead. And I totally understand that there is a rewatchability behind it. And maybe one day I, I'll see myself, you know what? I want to do something awful today. <laughs> I'm going to rewatch this movie. This is like the Comedy Central roast of Solaris. It's like, look, like Solaris is sitting in the center, and you got Jeff Ross there. And like, I don't know. Look, I, For some reason, Pete Davidson is Pete Davidson's here. So he's like one SNL person. And he's going to look at that. He's going to steal your girlfriend and all that. Uh, but look, look, I would not watch this movie. If someone makes this a viewing party, I, that is probably going to be the worst party on the earth. <laughs> like, no, I. You want to lose Brian as a friend? Everybody hosts a salon <laughs> party. Yeah, no. I like. I, I get it. Why people like it? I get it. It's just something I would not uh, personally watch. Sure. Don't check your mailbox then. <laughs> <laughs> Throw the invitation. In the trash. Uh, <laughs> What about you, Matt? What uh, what uh, rating do you give to Solaris? Great rating system. I would say I would own it. I agree. It would be a tough party. Um, you'd have to have really good past apps. Like you would have to like really show out with the food. I think to keep people excited. But I would certainly say like I I'm probably in that camp of like I didn't you know I didn't connect to it in a way that I was maybe hoping to I would fully connect to it you know but I think when I was watching I was like if I rewatched this movie if I put the time into it I sort of like it was one of those I watch and I'm like you know I am not connecting to this a hundred percent but I can respect what it's trying to do I would love to it's like one of those movies I was thinking about where like even if I whether or not I think it's good or bad if it like changes the way I view the world for a little bit I think there's there has to be like value in that, and I was thinking about it because I had to. We didn't have anything in the fr- freezer. I was watching this yesterday, and we didn't have anything in the freezer. And I, to my wife, I was like, "Should I just run to Trader Joe's and we'll just like pack up with frozen stuff?" And she was like, "Sure." So I went, and then like the drive over to Trader Joe's felt so surreal <laughs> for after watching like an hour of this movie because it just like changes the way you view reality. Even the movie is about our understanding of reality and the way the film is shot sort of like changes your perception of 
like how you view the world and i like think part of what that whole quote-unquote slow cinema thing that's like a you know sort of a buzzwordy way of putting a lot of these types of movies into one category but even the ones that i'm like i'm having a hard time sitting here and watching this i can respect the way that it like changes sort of and and sort of tries to retrain your understanding of the world to try to tell you something whether or not that is like always like an enjoyable experience so that was a whole long way of saying i would own it uh i'd give it the old four out of five on the old letterbox we'll have to buy you the criterion collection (laughs) (laughs) chris what what would you think of solaris you know i've been pretty clear about my my criticism of this movie like it's glacial pace it's poor editing choices um i mean and and that being said though like this is a well made film overall it's well acted i love the production design um i think if tarkovsky if tarkovsky didn't intend to but he made the perfect companion film to 2001 a space odyssey um and i think if you if you are a hardcore science fiction fan like this has to be on your list to watch because of just how influential it has been and how its DNA can be seen in so many other films that have come out after in the last 50 years. Um, not going to call it a wood own. I'll call it a wood watch. Cause I feel like if you're, if you're firmly entrenched in the science fiction genre, this has to be a film you watch at least once. Yeah, I, agree. I could agree with that. And what about you, Sean? I'll wrap it up. Um, I would put this as a wood own as well. Uh, the pacing to me also it got to me at parts where I I had to pause and I would just like get up go to the bathroom and like kind of like two minutes of like oh, all right <laughs> let's get some food but I did enjoy uh, his choices I thought the choice like the pacing to me it felt like he was kind of trying to immerse the audience in like what it would be like in such a lonely uh, space up there and just like moments would go by where it's just like nothing happens and you're just bored out of your mind. And so uh, the choices, while sometimes we're baffling, like the raining inside and like the long drive through, I guess, Tokyo, where you're just like, what is going on? But maybe that was a choice, you know? I want people to be bored because that's what driving is like at times, you know? Who knows? Uh, inside his mind. So I, I admired his choices. I agree with you, Chris. I think if you're a sci-fi fan, you have to watch this at least once just to kind of get the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say in terms for me hosting a viewing party, it has to be something that really tickles my pickle. And this wasn't tickling me all the way. No, it's got to be a movie like Back to the Future or Aliens or something. Because yeah, right. I'm assuming you want to keep your friends, right? That's right. I would love to keep my friends instead of torture them. So, yeah, I would put this as a wood elm. It feels like the most, like, grad school studying, like, film history thing to be like, I'm having a Tarkovsky party. We all have to show up and watch, like, all the Tarkovskys. <laughs> yes. It's, like, such a stunt, like, to stunt on people like that. Like, you will. Are you are you intellectual enough to watch, like, these movies in a party setting? It's a horrible uh, thing to do to people. Uh, yeah. I just imagine <laughs> people that have those parties, they wear, like, unironic clothing. You know? <laughs> I'd rather like, have. overalls, but they live in Chicago. It's a lot of like shoulder patches yeah like, honestly i'd rather have which host i have a viewing here. party of requiem for a dream yeah. oh, <laughs> burn <laughs> take that darren aronofsky and i actually oh did gosh. that back in the day when i was 18 living in florida i hosted a viewing party of that movie and i kept my friends you know as side note the director that made that movie was influenced by this film i can believe it darren yeah. aronofsky is the man yeah 
Yeah. I guess. Oh yeah, he's another one, right? Like he's another one where you can see like the the ripples of the Tarkovsky movies in what he's doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good note to close out this episode. Uh, Sean, great pick. Another great uh, pick in uh, here in Foreign Sci-Fi Month. What are we talking about next time? So next time we're going to review the film. It's called uh, Time Crimes, I believe. And it's by some director that I'm going to look up right now. (laughs) But uh, it's a 2007 Spanish science fiction thriller film directed by Nacho Vigalando. Oh, si, si. Great name. (laughs) There we go, Brian. Absolutely. So I'm excited to bring that one up uh, for the next one. Like I said, it was just a random pick from the old uh, Googles. Nice. So we'll check it. Well, Brian McLeod, Matt Hooper, thank you so much for joining us on uh, this continued entry in Foreign Sci-Fi Month. Uh, thank Matt, you for having me. Matt just jo- Matt uh, joining us again, or joined us for the City of Lost Children. So we'll also look back at that episode. And yeah, we've got Time Crimes coming out, and our last entry is going to be a bit of a secret. You'll have to tune into Time Crimes to find out what that's going to be. Awesome. Well, thank you, Chris. As always, it's always a pleasure to have you. Likewise, my friend. All right, folks. So if you enjoyed uh, this episode of Force Fed Sci-Fi, please come back. Check out us on our website, www.forcefedsci-fi.com. We're on Spotify, Apple, any type of streaming service where you get your Spotify podcast, music, whatever. Check us out. Like, subscribe, give us a comment, or send us an email for a movie that you want us to review. For me and the rest of the Force Fed Sci-Fi team, we'll see you next time. Bye. James Cameron. Ha, ha, ha.